What's up, everyone? This is Justin Gordon from Vitalize Venture Capital, and welcome to Talking Venture, a show where you'll learn how to build and invest in startups, featuring interviews with startup founders and operators, angel investors and venture capitalists, as well as deep dives into a variety of aspects of the startup world from the team here at Vitalize. On today's episode, we have Wes K.O., co-founder at Maven, a platform for cohort-based and community-driven courses to transform your career. To this date, Maven has raised $20 million in venture capital while partnering with some of the best instructors to offer live online classes. On today's episode, we take a deep dive into Maven's story and much more. Let's jump in. Wes, welcome to the show. Thanks, Justin. I'm excited to chat with you. There's so much to dive into with your experience with cohort-based courses and now with Maven. For people who aren't familiar with what Maven is doing, what is Maven doing today, Wes? Maven is a platform that makes it really easy for creators to build, host, and run cohort-based courses. So cohort-based courses are still a relatively new learning format in the online education world. And so basically the concept is, is really simple. It's a group of learners who start a course at the same time with start and end dates where you're learning together with a community. So it's a lot more engaging of an experience. There's a lot more hands-on learning where you're giving each other feedback, you're doing projects together. There might be coaches, you're role-playing, debating, discussing, and it's all in contrast to the previous era of online education, which was basically a series of pre-recorded videos on uh, Udemy or uh, LinkedIn Learning, where it's a much more um, passive content-consuming experience. So court-based courses are, are the opposite of that. It's all about actively learning. I'm really curious with Maven because this is something where obviously you're supporting these creators who are creating these courses. What did you see as the, the opportunity, the empty spot in the market where we didn't have these tools available? I'm really curious about how you thought about that in the beginning for starting Maven. Mm-hmm. Before starting Maven, I co-founded the Alt MBA with Seth Godin in 2015, and you know at that time the uh, predominant learning uh, online learning format was MOOCs, massive open online courses. So it's it's the Udemy's, the Coursera's, edX, and uh, one thing that I I noticed early on was that the completion rate for MOOCs is super low, three yeah. to seven percent. <laughs> So a yep. bunch of people sign up for courses, excited to learn, excited about their own potential, and a tiny percentage of people actually stay long enough for any of that learning to happen. And Seth and I thought about this and just thought, you know, there must be a better way, that this couldn't be the pinnacle of what online education was, was supposed to be for everyone. So we started kicking around some ideas, and, and that's how the Alt MBA was born. And the opportunity there and, and afterwards uh, with working directly with with creators after the Alt MBA and now with starting Maven was me realizing firsthand how much of a challenge it was to cobble together all of these different tools that you needed in order to be able to create a course. So if you have a course that's two to three weeks, you're cobbling together half a dozen different tools ranging from Zoom to Slack to Circle, Teachable, email. And it's a really disjointed experience for your students who have to you know, go to a bunch of different places just to get the right content and just to know, you know when is our next uh, live workshop or when is this homework due or who's my assigned group for the week. Uh, so it's not a great student experience. And then for the instructor, it provides, it's just a lot of additional overhead and slog to have to, um, to manage. So uh, one of the, the biggest inspirations for starting Maven was um, wanting to create an all-in-one place 
where anyone who wanted to teach and, and teach live could have an easy place for them to be able to handle everything for their course. So that was one part of it. The other part was that after the Alt-MBA for two, two and a half years, I um, had a, a big question for myself, which was the Alt-MBA worked. We grew the community to thousands of alumni in 45 yeah. countries, 500 cities, and people you know, were constantly telling us how life-changing the experience was. And a question popped up for me, which was, was there something in the water, in the air that made <laughs> this work? And, and was that an anomaly? Was this a you know a one-off or could the cohort-based model apply to other creators, other instructors, other subject matter experts, authors, um, and other functions and topics? And so that's where I spent the last two years before starting Maven working directly with these other creators to help them essentially start their own mini Alt-MBAs. So I worked with yeah. Professor Galloway at NYU uh, Stern to launch Section 4. Um, I worked with the co-founders of Morning Brew, Alex and Austin, to launch their eight-week online accelerator program. I worked with William Yuri's team. He's a professor emeritus at Harvard who worked with President Carter on negotiation to bring his negotiation curriculum into a core-based course. So I worked with a bunch of creators in different verticals and was able to prove, to myself at least, that okay, there's something here, that cohort-based courses, uh, there's something that's resonating with students. And in the meantime, uh, the market was seeing this and reacting and other people were creating core-based courses. And so all of this kind of led to this groundswell. Um, and one of the things that struck me when I was consulting was that there were so many creators, smaller creators who would reach out to me and want to work together, but they didn't have the budget to be able to work together. And yeah. so it was almost like I was working at the Alton Bay with Seth and, you know, and I wanted to democratize online learning and core-based courses but I was still working with people that were pretty successful already, <laughs> right? Like people who work with former presidents, like, okay, yeah. right? You're already at the top of your field and you already have an audience. You already have a team. And, and I wanted to start something that could allow all these smaller creators, these smaller subject matter experts and, and operators to be able to also get in on the action, to get in on being able to teach and build their own micro communities. So that's what really inspired me. Um, to work with Maven or to, to start Maven, because if you think about it, um, even so it started with Alt-MBA, right? Like monetizing um, and creating a course around Seth's content and bringing yeah. that to life and then working with dozens of creators, but, you know, still in the, the two digit mark. And then now with Maven, it's thousands of creators who will be able to create courses. And so really opening up and broadening that access um, after seeing a seed of a problem that, that a smaller, you know, group is facing and realizing that, wow, a lot of other people are facing this too. Why don't we, why don't we make it easier for everyone to be able to create courses? There's a lot to go through there. One of the things I want to go through, what you mentioned there with obviously creating an opportunity for way more people to create courses then means it's a really big market. And you can even expand the market. How did you position that in terms of talking to VCs, knowing this is going to be venture backed? How did that go into the thinking process of where we, we want to take this thing? Yeah, I think being able to paint the picture of where online learning was and where it's going was really important. So the first wave of online learning, as you mentioned earlier, was was all about MOOCs. And there are a couple MOOC companies that have become billion-dollar businesses. So my co-founder, Gogan Biani, co-founded Udemy, which is now a multi-billion-dollar business. And so being able to paint the story of, okay, here's where we were, here's... Uh, 
here's the potential that that the, that kind of education uh, company was able to reach. And here's the next phase that that was only phase one and the direction of where things are going based on a, a, a bunch of different market trends and um, and weak signals that we're seeing is that students want something that is more community driven, that content now is abundant. It's cheap or free and yep. you can't just say, oh, we have free content and, and, and make a business around that anymore. And you know, consumers pay for what's scarce. So if content's not scarce, well, what are they paying for? They're paying for connection, for community, yep. for an experience that's going to transform them. And being able to paint that picture and say, you know, here are early cohort-based courses, Alt MBA, Section 4, Reforge, On Deck, that have already tapped into this uh, successfully. And, you know, there's not a player in the market right now that is a platform, though. You know, all of those, all of those existing courses are, are publishers. So the publishers in that there's a, a single brand entity, if you will. So the Reforge has a brand, OnDeck has a brand, uh, Akimbo, AltMBA, there's a brand. Uh, but there's not a, a platform business model. And so we want to be the platform here that um, encourages and allows anyone to be able to come onto the platform and create their own courses, build their own micro communities, um, and, and really fill a need in the market. With your experience and working with so many different creators and obviously now starting Maven as well. And you mentioned, I think another podcast or in your writing around having a passion for kind of positioning and the marketing side of things, any, like how, what does that process look like for you starting Maven for instance, or starting someone else's course or helping them with their course around how you go through positioning and looking at the launch of a business, uh, a course, anything. Um, I'm just thinking of other founders listening to this and what might be helpful for them in terms of how they think through positioning of their company because you've done it so many times. I'm curious to hear more about that. Yeah, definitely. I like thinking about positioning um, in a couple different ways. So one is from the outside in and the other is from the inside out. So what I mean by that is the outside in is looking at what are what are market trends? What are people wanting? That even if you weren't in offering this, there is demand for that. It's a bad sign if there's not demand for, you know, <laughs> other than you providing this thing, right? So it's a good thing yeah. if there's if if people are asking for something. So that's kind of the outside in. The inside out is thinking about what is unique about yourself and your assets and constraints that make you uniquely suited to start this business to launch this product, to build this course and teach this course. So really thinking about your own assets and, and constraints and working within those. If you have a random idea and someone on the street, the next person who walks by could have the same chances of success starting that business or starting that course, you probably shouldn't do that. So really being honest with yourself about um, what you have going for you. Um, so those those two ways I think are are a good way to you know look at that Venn diagram to see where is their overlap. The other thing that I um, always encourage first time course creators to think about is course market fit. So the two co concepts where I said earlier you know links closely to this and its idea of what what am I uniquely suited to teach? Where's their demand, and uh, what do I like doing? So if if you really want to hit that sweet spot of those three overlapping. Um, 
And I think that's a great way to think about where you bring a unique perspective to the market. So that's one. It's kind of like what to build, what to teach in the first place. Yeah. And then the second piece is how do you message that? How do you how do you communicate that positioning so that you stand out? I think one of the the biggest things that um, creators, founders, uh, and anyone who wants to build something has to think about is whatever it is that you want to do. Um, there are thousands of other people probably <laughs> offering something similar, and you know they they might have similar backgrounds, similar years of experience, similar offerings. So if you're not able to stand out, then you're kind of dead in the water. Like none of this other stuff matters if you're not able to stand out. So I think a lot about how do you stand out? How do you figure out what your customers want? One of those, one of the frameworks that I developed is called having a spiky point of view. So having a spiky point of view means having a point of view that other people can disagree with that you feel strongly about, that's rooted in your own personal experience and expertise. So it's your thesis about how things should work. So one of my spiky points of view is that if you're building a course, you shouldn't think about marketing at the end. So most people build, they, they think about the product, they think about the strategy, and then and then marketing is, is this last step. And my spiky point of view is that you need to do marketing in the beginning. Starting from day one, don't even build the thing unless you know how to market it. Because it's the world is too competitive. Courses are too competitive now that that you you can't afford to basically think about marketing at, at the last step. So that's one of my spiky points of view. Uh, another is from my my friend Chris Davis, who um, runs an automation consulting practice, and he talks about how a lot of automation consultants um, focus on tools, tools and you know software and uh, you know Zapier and and kind of the, the software side, but his spiky point of view is that the strategy is the most important. What is the end outcome that you want your customer to do or your client to be able to do? And then using that to reverse engineer and drive what tools should you pick? What system should that look like? What should that flow look like? Um, so that's a great spiky point of view because everyone is zigging and he's zagging, right? And it's rooted in his personal experience from having a ton of exposure, working with a ton of clients, building a ton of automations. So I think one thing that's important with the spiky point of view is that it's not controversial for the sake of it. So you shouldn't stir the pot just to stand out and, you know, drop a, do a mic drop with a hot take. That's not <laughs> useful for anyone. It should yeah. be something that you believe in and that you have conviction about that, um, that you're willing to, to really go to bat for. So spiky point of view, I think is a, a really great one to reflect for yourself. What are some of my spiky points of view? From, from being a VC, from being a marketer, from um, building courses? What are some of my spiky points of view? The other framework that, uh, that a lot of founders and, and creators have, have found helpful is eyes lighting up. ELU is what I call it for short. And eyes lighting up is, is this idea that when you're pitching someone in conversation, talking about your idea, um, you can tell if someone's eyes are kind of glazing over and they're just politely nodding along. Uh, and you can also tell when, when someone is actually excited and they're leaning in, they want to hear what you say next, they're, something has piqued their interest. And I think most of us, we, we kind of have this script that we want to say, right? Like we have our elevator pitch and we want to get to it. And, and, and you can see the person kind of tuning out, but you're like, no, I, I got to get through, you know, the 30 second thing that I planned. And with eyes lighting up, the idea is that you, you want to pay attention to the clues that the other person is giving you. 
So what are the hot keywords that you're saying that get the person to nod? What are the things that get the person to frown a little bit and lean, lean in a little bit more? What are the things that, that make them look surprised? So these are all clues for you about what about your positioning and messaging you might want to highlight with your target audience and constantly being alert for these clues so you can refine what your sales pitch is, what your VC pitch is, what your you know pitch to your students is. So that's spiky point of view and eyes lighting up. With Maven then, in those early days when you're just kind of getting this off the ground, how many customers were you talking to or how are you how were you thinking about the you know initial like getting some feedback from people around what you were going to build the tools you wanted to start with obviously you have so much experience with it so it's kind of like you're cheated in some way which is great you have an advantage there but how did you do that in terms of talking to potential customers getting that feedback and then putting that into what you wanted to launch with at least with maven i think with maven we were in a unique situation which is a good situation for founders i would say which is that before starting this business, I had five, six years of experience building cohort-based courses, hands-on, directly with exactly the customers that we wanted to serve, which is part of what, what gave birth to Maven. Um, but I would say if, if, if a founder isn't in that situation, um, really understanding what your customer wants and looking for weak signals, I think, is, is the way to go. Um, and I think, you know, everyone says, try to understand what the customer wants. So I'll try to add a little bit more color on that because that's kind of Captain Obvious. So I think, I think one thing that, that even today and, and you know, as we, as we continue to grow that I'm constantly staying aware of is patterns and unspoken truths about our business, about our industry, about our customer. So not just what are people directly saying, but also what is their behavior telling us and what, what is uh, the subtext of what it is that they're saying? I think there's a school of camp that um, is about asking customers what they want, doing surveys, et cetera. I don't really believe in that. I think that observing behavior is a much more accurate view of, um, of what people actually believe and actually do. Um, so so training yourself to be a keen observer of behavior and noticing things, being very good at noticing things that other people miss, I think that's where you gain an edge in um, sharpening your insights of what can we offer this group? What can we iterate on? What can we change? There's plenty of things that people say that they're already happy with that they're not that happy with. And there's things that people say they're not happy with that if you just kept it there, it's, it's a problem that's kind of a minor annoyance, but it's not you know, it's not terrible, right? So yeah. I think you as a founder, as a leader, are the one who has to have hypotheses and assertions about how do I move this forward? How do I offer something to people before they know that they want it? You had such a strong team, have such a strong team to launch this with, and you could go a lot of ways in terms of how you launched Maven, how you went about this, but how did you go through the launch process, how you thought about creators you want to work with immediately and how has that gone so far it's still a relatively new company i'd love to hear more about the kind of the launch and getting this off the ground because you've made a lot of traction already it seems like i'd be curious to hear more when we were fundraising we prioritized creators who wanted to launch courses on maven so you know a lot of our creators are also our angel investors and that's not uh, a coincidence that was that was planned and, and thoughtful because we knew that we wanted to be for and by creators. 
and uh, incorporating creators directly into our business as investors early on was was a way for us to do that. We also ran a crowdfunding campaign uh, last uh, fall winter where we um, opened up our round to um, anyone who wanted to be able to participate, not just institutional investors. And we got a lot of first-time investors. We got a lot of uh, people who were excited about education, excited about learning, um, and 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 really incorporating these different perspectives um, into our business early on was an important way for us to stay really connected to the people that we're building for and serving. One of the things with that, so that's a very smart way to go about things. And I think crowdfunding in this particular case as well, I mean, it's a, it's a perfect fit in that way. Like we're thinking about that as well at Vitalize in terms of leveraging crowdfunding to then be able to provide help in a strategic way to founders who may be willing to pay that, you know, seven and a half percent, whatever the fee ends up being for crowdfunding platforms, they're willing to pay that for the help they'll get through crowdfunding with opening up to non-accredited investors. Obviously you have a different route we can go with accredited investors where you don't have to necessarily pay that fee depending on what you're using. But it is interesting to see how that's happening and that's going to continue to kind of progress as people get equity then in these companies and then they are have a vested interest in helping mm-hmm. the companies, which is very clearly aligned. From that then, going from those initial investors and obviously they're going to help because they have big audiences of these people who are creating these courses, which which helps. How do you create the flywheel for that in terms of growth then moving forward for Maven and what that looks like as you expand out from the initial creators with massive audiences to smaller and smaller creators? How does that flywheel, what does that flywheel look like? Or how do you think about that as you expand beyond the initial people you've, you've, you have have on the platform? We're already seeing some positive signs of a flywheel happening, especially on the demand side, the student side. So students take multiple Maven courses. They uh, follow up with their instructor and say you know, to Legion, for example, that uh, this was the best course that I've ever taken. Or they message Greg Eisenberg on his course on community and say, I've already met uh, a couple friends through your course that I know I'm going to stay in touch with forever. Um, at the Alt-MBA, we had so many examples of students and alumni who uh, attended each other's weddings, who started businesses together, who hired each other. Uh, who uh, worked on side projects together, who would f- who would stay at each other's houses uh, when they were flying over uh, for business trips or whatnot. So this community um, aspect of core-based courses lends itself really well to word of mouth and to a flywheel. Um, so I think that's, that's one part of it. The other is I think creators are pretty plugged into noticing what are other creators doing? What are other creators, how are they making money? Right. And, and what's, you know, what are new revenue streams that I should be exploring? So when you see your friend or a commander or whoever uh, launching a core based course and being able to charge a premium for that course, um, I think that really attracts other creators and, um, and helps them understand that, okay, wow, like this is an opportunity that I didn't realize existed. So a lot of what we're doing is educating creators on, hey, core based courses exist. It's kind. It's not. It's not so much that there are so many other players. It's more um, uh, not knowing that core-based courses are a thing, and that you can charge between five hundred dollars to five thousand dollars per student, um, which is really attractive for a lot of creators because a lot of other ways to monetize are reliant on volume. So if you're a, a YouTuber, for example, um, you might need hundreds of thousands of subscribers or uh, you know, millions of views per month to be able to make ad revenue or to get approached for brand sponsorships. Same with if you're an influencer on Instagram. 
Um, so volume really matters in these situations. Same with um, Patreon, right? If you're, or, or even uh, new, paid newsletters. If you're charging $8 per month, you need a lot of people to really make that work. Whereas with cohort-based courses, you need a smaller number of people because the ticket price for each student is higher, right? So it's, a, it's less on volume, higher on, on the ticket price. Um, and there's a lot of creators where this business model makes a lot more sense. They have a more tightly knit community. They have a lot of trust with that community. So their audience size isn't huge, but they have a lot of credibility and people are willing to, to pay that person to teach them how to solve their problems. So I think that it just, it opens up another quadrant. I call it the creator monetization matrix. It's a two by two uh, with scale, uh, high scale versus low scale, and then low price versus high price. And court-based courses are in that upper right quadrant where um, you can charge a premium price point and also have almost unlimited opportunity to scale because of the the the, uh, the digital nature of courses. So yep. um, I think that's that's another way we're thinking about it. There's just a loud noise, but we're back. So with that too, one thing that I find really interesting with this is all like around the future of work in terms of how people monetize, because so many experts in different fields could create courses, especially at the price point you're talking about, where they have cohort-based courses that maybe not take that much time. And it could be a valuable career path, especially moving forward. And we've heard the whole like Kevin Kelly, a thousand true fans, Li Jin talking about a hundred true fans. And when you do the numbers with, you know, between 500 to 5,000, and even the average is a thousand or 2,000 per person. That's not that many people you need over the course of a year for most people to have a livable salary. Um, and obviously it takes a lot to get to that point, but with people having the expertise in different ways, it becomes really intriguing to see where, how people are leveraging that and using that to create courses uh, or have other revenue streams as creators with even courses being one big part of that and maybe something else, consulting being a piece of that as well. With your expansion then from those those initial customers, like I mentioned before, kind of the first people you had who are also investors, are there certain verticals you're targeting, people you want to have, create courses in different categories you're targeting? Like, How are you even thinking about that? Because there's so many ways I imagine you could go with it. I'd be curious to know how you guys are thinking about that side of things as well, Wes. The verticals that we're starting with are around business, strategy, startups, tech, basically where Goggin and my networks are. So that was more of a practical decision. I think the other reason we're starting there is because professional development is a pretty um, important category. So there are a lot of working professionals who want to sharpen their craft. So UX designers who want to get better at design, uh, managers who want to get better at leadership, people management, um, and want to advance in their careers, product managers who want to get promoted, uh, people who want to learn about crypto to get a job in crypto. So there are all these um, opportunities where uh, there are professionals who want to level up their skill sets. Um, so I think that lends itself really well to, to what we're doing. Um, so starting there, I think court-based courses are such a, a nascent category. They're so new still that every week I see interesting courses that creators are spinning up and they're putting their unique spin on it and they're, they're breaking convention and, you know, doing it in their own way. Um, and I love that. I think there's so much innovation that's going to happen in the next five years. Uh, and we're, we're barely scratching the surface now of what courses could look like, who should teach them, what topics make sense to teach for courses. Um, I think I think that any topic that um, where it would benefit from peer feedback 
community and hands-on doing is open game for core-based courses, which is a lot of topics. Like when you're (laughs) learning something, learning involves the back and forth struggle of grappling with the thing, right? You learn this concept. You're like, okay, this sounds pretty straightforward. I think I get it. And then you try it and you're like, okay, this didn't work at all, right? So how do I iterate? What went wrong? How do I diagnose the issue? How do I troubleshoot? And then it's through this, this back and forth grappling with the topic that you actually learn the thing and you get experience with it. And core-based courses provide uh, an arena for that, an opportunity for that with a, a focused period of time with other people who are interested in nerding out about the same things that you want to nerd out about. So I see the opportunity expanding way beyond professional development and you know upskilling. Um, and there are so many different topics uh, that could really benefit from, from core-based courses. The interesting thing with that too is like what you mentioned with upskilling as well with these different professional skills is like, do companies pay for this or not? Like, is a company paid for it? And then they, obviously the revenue stream in that way, which is interesting if companies are ending up paying for this as a way to then upskill their employees in some capacity. For you guys then, like at Maven, what's the business model? How have you thought about that for this? Uh, I'm curious about that as well, Wes. Our business model is similar to Substack. So Substack is a free newsletter platform tool. And if you want to charge for your newsletter, they take 10%. So Maven is the same way. If you want to launch a course and you're building it, we're not taking any of that revenue. But when you start charging your students, we take 10% of revenue and the creator keeps 90%. So we intentionally wanted to create a business model that was really creator friendly, where the creator owned their content. They could you know, upload it in, take it out whenever they wanted to, um, where they had access to their students' information and could reach out to them whenever, where they could build their communities directly on our platform. Uh, because I think there's there's definitely a trend going towards creator empowerment and creating uh, creator-friendly tools that give the creator more control and more uh, more oversight, more strategic, you know, the ability to, to, to drive their own strategy for how they want to run their business. So for us, uh, we want to take a percentage that felt like it was a no-brainer for creators that, you know, here we are offering everything from uh, support on the admissions funnel to uh, accepting payments for your course to hosting your content and um, and having a student portal and logins for your students to be able to to meet all in one place to the know-how and training that we provide. So I personally teach a six-week course on how to build a core-based course that's completely free. We have dozens of coaches uh, right now, we're uh, in the middle of one now. We're wrapping up on Thursday. So Thursday's graduation. And uh, we have over 100 instructors who are building their courses on our platform who over the course of six weeks learned about how to build their curriculum, how to download all the ideas swirling their head into content that made sense and was structured in an order of operations that would be useful for the learner to how do you create interactivity in a course so that your your students are learning by doing and not just passively listening to you lecture in a monologue to how do you market your course? How do you think about course market fit? How do you um, define your target student? How do you write a great landing page? So that end to end process, we teach all of that for free for, uh, for our, our um, creators. So all of that value, we really wanted to make sure we were um, not just offering software and tooling, but, but supplementing it with the community, the know-how, the best practices so that we could set our creators up for success. 
I know you with with running Alt MBA with uh, with Seth, Go- Seth Godin and everything with that and growing that business did really well. It was really successful. Now coming into to Maven, a bit different in terms of the, obviously the business you're, you're running now. You're supporting them, supporting creators in a different way, building the tools for them. So it's it's a bit different in that way. What have been the biggest challenges with building Maven, growing Maven for you personally? I'm just really curious about that. Yeah, great question. I think one of them is helping creators understand that core-based courses are a thing. So, you know, I'll get on the phone with creators sometimes and they'll say, you know, I've heard about core-based courses, but what are they actually, how does this work? Um, what, you know, what would it take for me to build a course? So the education piece I think is, is big. I think that will gradually um, solve itself over time. So we're going to continue educating the market, but as people catch on, I think news is going to spread. So I think that's one. Um, I think the other internally is uh, hiring great team members fast enough to fuel all the ambitious goals that we have and to fuel our growth. So uh, a lot of my time these days is spent on um, thinking about our org chart, building out different parts of the business, figuring out how do we staff these different parts of the business with um, high performing people who care a lot about the work, who care a lot about education, um, who can simultaneously be strategic, but also hands-on. So I call them strategic doers, uh, not just one or the other. Um, and so finding great people uh, is very top of mind. I want to dive into that because I started a newsletter recently called Startup Hiring, where we dive into kind of that exact thing around that, because that's one of the biggest pieces any founder is going to deal with. It's it's like hiring and firing, you're fundraising, you're maybe doing sales, but the hiring part is huge, especially as you grow, especially as you raise capital. That's the expectation. You're growing your team. You're building that out. You mentioned the org chart. How are you thinking about that as a starting point? We're in the middle of leadership conversations about that literally <laughs> last last week and this week. We have an, an yeah. offsite coming up. We're going to dive deeper into that. Um, I think the way that I think about it is looking at the different challenges and opportunities that the business has and how can we structure the organization so that we're putting great people in areas that are going to unlock a lot of growth for us. So one example is um, teaching creators how to build a high quality core base course. So that if we can do that, we unlock a whole bunch of supply of high quality courses to come onto our platform, right? So that's a good example of um, a juicy challenge where we want to staff up instructor success people, we want to staff up content people, we want to staff people who can help run uh, uh, operations to support instructors who can think, who can be thoughtful about how do we teach a pretty complex topic like launching a course. And launching a course, in taking a step back, it's it's 80% effort upfront. And once you build that asset, you can turn on that asset anytime you want to thereafter. So, yeah. but building that, building something robust and high quality in the beginning from scratch, it's a little bit like launching any other product or, or starting a business where you do have to think about who am I catering this course to and what's my price point going to be and what topic should I, uh, should I teach in the first place and how do I um, teach this topic in a way that, that it's going to be most transformational for my learners, right? So there's a, there's a ton of different variables. I created a, a framework called the Course Mechanics Canvas which has 12 different levers and you can kind of move the dial to the left, to the right to help instructors think about the different variables that, that are on the table. So <clears throat> continuing to help instructors and creators 
learn how to build a great, a great course that um, is built around their unique strengths and assets, their unique personality, their lifestyle, what they want to get out of launching course business. Um, that's one area that I'm, I'm hiring for and, and staffing up. Um, the other is sales and partnerships. So um, team members that will uh, go out and find great instructors to bring onto the platform and vet them uh, thoughtfully for who's a good fit and how do we set expectations with these different creators. Um, and then uh, the services arm. So, you know, I think because courses are such a, there's such an experiential product, it's not something where it's, it's purely the software for, you know, for our business in a meta way and, and for instructors and their uh, courses for their customers, which are students. So uh, thinking about how can we offer services potentially for these instructors that help alleviate the lift and, um, and make that process easier. So staffing up in a, in a lot of different areas all across the business. That's just the business I, side too. We're also hiring for engineering and product if anyone is interested. So lots of fun. How are you going about that in terms of sourcing? Because there, I mean, there's, a, it can be overwhelming, let's just put it that way, to have to hire for all these different roles. You mentioned there's so many different aspects of it. How are you going about that sourcing side of it, bringing candidates and like all that? I'm just curious if you have some things around that that you're doing that's maybe been helpful for you as other founders are going to inevitably go through the same thing. I'm curious for you how you're going through it. I'm constantly looking for tips and best practices on this. So you might be better to, to share some of what's worked for, for you and, and the companies you've worked with. Um, we recently brought on an amazing recruiter who just started um, on Monday. So I think having someone dedicated is going to be uh, fantastic for helping us organize across all these different roles. Um, simultaneously hiring for, you know, for a bunch of roles uh, can be pretty tough on, on the hiring manager. So, so that's, that's one way we're handling it. Um, the other is I've been really fascinated by um, competence-based hiring. And uh, I, I, that might come you know, with other names, um, but it's basically the idea of not just looking at someone's background, but looking at how they would actually perform on the job. Um, so I, I love this idea because I think there are a lot of candidates whose backgrounds don't naturally seem like a great fit. And if you were just looking at the resume, you might think that there's no overlap with, with the role that you're hiring for. Uh, but if you were to give them a, a take-home project or a small you know, paid, paid task or you know, do a small contract, you can see their actual performance and their actual thinking solving actual real problems that your company is facing. So one thing that, that I really keep in mind is how do we mimic reality as much as possible in the hiring process? So if there's a role that I'm hiring for where I need the person to, to lead and assert and create order out of chaos then I try not to present something to them that is um, already super orderly and, and have them do it yeah. like that, right? It's like, well, that's that's not what the job is going to be like when you arrive. Right? So I don't want to do you, you know? So it's, it's, it's good for both the candidate and the company, I think, because the candidate really gets um, a chance to see what is the role going to be like. And then you as a founder get to see, you know, how does this person perform under real life circumstances? Uh, and one of those one of those things with competence based hiring um, that I've I found good success with recently is role playing. So you know if you're hiring for a sales role, actually role playing. You know I'm going to pretend to be an instructor. You pretend to be 
yourself, you know, being a Maven uh, sales and partnerships lead. And then we'll actually role play hopping on a 30 minute call. Um, you know, so, so how are you guiding that conversation? How are you driving things forward? How are you listening? Um, and I, as a hiring manager can get a much better sense of all the tacit knowledge and, and tacit information and, um, and unspoken parts that if someone were just answering interview questions, you don't get that right. But when you're role-playing, you can literally see how the person is managing you as a, a potential, uh, instructor or customer. Right. You get you get to see exactly what they would say to your customers if you if you hired them. Um, and I've I've seen um, I found that from doing role playing, from doing project based um, aspects of interviewing, that I feel a lot more confident when I am going to give an offer or not give an offer to know what to expect. And I think ultimately that's what you want. You, you want to not be surprised by <laughs> yeah. the person that you hire. I actually consider that even if I'm pleasantly surprised by the person, I consider that a failure on my part. That I should have known that this was something that you were really good at, right? Like I don't want to be surprised yep. at all, whether it's positive or negative. So the more that you can get a realistic look at who is this person, what are their, their strengths and weaknesses, so that you're not surprised when you bring them on, I think that's going to be the most fruitful way to um, kick off working together. Well, and to that point, Wes, too, it's like you have to not necessarily be surprised and have that process in place because you're going to hire many more people. Because if you're surprised every time with every person, it's like that variability over time. And like, are you building the right team necessarily? Maybe not. One of the things I want to go back to, though, real quick, is you mentioned Recruiter had just started. So is this in-house Recruiter or just as, or is this out of like another recruiter working with you, but on a contract basis or something? I'm curious. They're an agency. That we have okay, the agency. How, yeah. how did you decide on that and the timing on that? Because that's always something that comes up in the, the newsletter, at least. Yeah. Um, I think for us, it was realizing that we had a lot of roles that we wanted to hire for and managing it just with the hiring managers internally was not enough and was pretty overwhelming given that we all had functional areas that we were running and, and goals that we needed to hit every quarter. Um, and so... It was more of a, you know, here's a, here's a bandwidth issue um, and a, a real need. Is there, how do we solve this problem? Um, and and an agency that was able to slot in uh, was one of the ways. We're still keeping an eye out on um, a, a senior recruiter to join actually in house. So we're continuing to hire for that role. So if anyone is listening is a great senior recruiter, then yeah, <laughs> I'll give I'll give you a shout out in the newsletter to make sure we have that as well because I talked to. Uh, uh, John Dahl from Mux, and they just raised maybe like another 70 million or something. So they're obviously, they're going to triple their team, I think this year. And they have a mix of in-house versus like kind of contract recruiters for different positions. And they end up doing a lot of recruiters for particular roles, like higher recruiters for only like particular roles, like a sales role specifically or something like that. And then have kind of the other hires um, handled by in-house. So it's kind of a crazy mix of things, um, which is why I ask, because I'm always curious what companies are doing and how they decide to to go about that, because it is such a, a difficult thing to, to figure out. And on the team note, one thing I want to get, uh, go back to with Goggin, with working with Goggin. So you both have experience with courses, like a lot of experience with courses. What's that dynamic like on making decisions, deciding direction, because you have different opinions, I'm sure, in some capacities. How has that been? I'm just curious more broadly of that as well. Yeah, um, I think our founding team is is super experienced and that lends um, a groundedness to the way that we're, we're solving problems. So um, Goggins started Udemy, which kicked off MOOCs 
and, and the generation of on-demand evergreen courses. I started the Alta which kicked off the new generation of CBCs. And our third co-founder, Shreyan Spensali, uh, started Socratic, which got acquired by Google. And uh, he was the first engineer at Venmo, and he has a ton of education experience. So the three of us, I think, are, are well-versed in our craft and in the industry and in, in what learners want. Um, and I think we, we're aligned on the, the big pieces. So the big directions, uh, the, the company strategy, we're pretty aligned on. And I think we have great tension, healthy tension in different perspectives uh, when it comes to um, the way we want to execute or you know, different parts of the business, essentially. Um, I, I love learning from Goggin and Trayons. I, I am constantly amazed by the <laughs> level of insight that they bring because I feel like, I mean, this is me patting myself on the back a little bit, but I feel like I bring pretty good insights to, to solving problems and, and you know, noticing things that other people miss, solving problems in elegant ways if there's you know, not an obvious solution. Um, and I feel like when I talk to Shreyans and Goggin that they almost always have a solution that I think is, is equally good or better than mine. Which is pretty amazing to think about, right? Like when when you want when you think about co-founders uh, that you want to hit your own wagon to, like this is the holy grail. It's people who you think are smarter than you, who are yeah. really good at what they do. Um, and I think all of us are are very rigorous thinkers. So we have a an internal, uh, I guess you call it a, a debate culture, where we're pretty direct and we we advocate for our ideas. And um, I think that this this creates a lot of openness in terms of. Um, no wild card idea is is too weird or you know or or is a no right off the bat. If you can make the business case for it, it's fair game. So that's what we we um, tell our team, um, and that that allows ideas to come from everywhere, um, and not only be limited to you know product ideas from the product team, course ideas from the courses team, etc. Um, and I think the other thing about Goggin and Trayons is that we we subscribe to the strong ideas loosely held. So there'll be, you know, a lot of conversations will start off with a certain perspective and we'll hear the other people's, you know, we'll hear the other person say this uh, and we'll say, yeah, I changed my mind. Like we should definitely do that. And it's great because like, we're not emotionally attached to, well, you know, this was my idea or well, this is your idea. So like, I don't want that. We're, we're very flexible. I'm doing whatever is right for the business no ego. We're just like, yeah, let's definitely do what Shreyan said, or let's definitely do what better. <laughs> yeah. Goggin's idea was definitely better. Let's just do that. So I think that fluidity, um, is great because it's, it's that debate culture, but, but with the lightness and cooperation and trust that, um, I think, I think when you think about debate, you don't necessarily think of, right. It's kind of like everyone's entrenched and, and like fighting for their point of view. It's not that way at all. It's, it's debate, but with a, a certain lightness that allows us to come to better, decisions faster. With that, uh, seemingly having found amazing co-founders, which obviously it's working out so, so far, what was that process though, in terms of figuring out that you guys wanted to work together? Because I mean, for all aspiring founders, that's always one of the biggest things too, in the beginning, it's like, how do you vet the co-founder? How do you find that they're going to be the person and not screw this up? Cause we're going to build this company for a decade. Like how was that dating, courting, whatever, uh, process with your co-founders was? Goggin and I uh, got back in touch last summer. And uh, before that, we went to high school and college together. So we actually knew each other from before. 
um, and hadn't seen each other for, I don't know, 10 years or so. Um, I, Gogan was a year younger than me uh, in school. So we didn't really talk. I kind of knew of him and, and you know, we, we did on-campus recruiting together at, at UC Berkeley. Um, yeah. But, you know, we, we didn't really keep in touch that often. Um, and, and last summer he reached out because he had just finished, I think, two years traveling abroad after closing down Sprig and um, had come back to the States and was wanting to start a new company. He had noticed that core-based courses were starting to trend and, and it, it piqued his interest. And he reached out and said, Wes, I've been talking to everyone about core-based courses and everyone I know said, you should talk to Wes. And I, I told them, I already know Wes. I'm just going to talk to her directly. Like, stop telling me to talk to Wes. And so, so he reached out and, and that's how we, we reconnected. Um, and we initially started kicking around some ideas for, for courses, uh, for, for course businesses. At the time, I was consulting. And I was pretty happy with my lifestyle um, and the business that I had built and, and all the flexibility and freedom that I had. So I actually wasn't starting. I wasn't, I wasn't looking to start a venture-packed business at all. Like that just was not in the cards for me in 2020, at least from what I thought. Um, but but as we talked in every conversation that we had, it just became more and more clear that this would be such an awesome fit. His his background and mine, um, and and we kept in mind a, a third co-founder who would be technical because both Gog and I are, are business focused. Um, that we thought, okay, what if you know what if we explored potentially being co-founders. And from that, there were uh, a few weeks where we then did co-founder vetting. We found this great article on First Round's website, and it, it's Ooh. the title is like 50 uh, questions for co-founder dating or something. And it, and it basically had, you know, 10 buckets of questions and, you know, a bunch of questions underneath. And they were all questions that you would, things you would find out about a person after working with them for a lot longer and stuff that you don't <laughs> want to reveal right off the bat, right? Like things that like, you know, there's a right answer to it. And you're like, this yeah. is the appropriate answer. This is how I really feel is over here. Right? <laughs> um, and, and, and it surfaced all of these really hard questions. And we went through all those questions and really got to know each other, really got to know what is this person's strengths, weaknesses, um, you know, downfalls, what's, what's the baggage that they're bringing. Right. And got really honest about that. And I feel like that, that process de-risked um, starting this business a lot. Uh, starting business uh, in terms of co-founder-wise, because uh, I I am pretty um, thoughtful about who I work with, who I want to be influenced by, and, and the people that you spend a lot of time with. Um, they have such an outsized impact on your life and your um, day to day. You know, especially a, a, a close relationship like a co-founder. And I wanted to make sure that this was someone that I could really trust and could see myself working with and could see, you know, the process being, being a good one and a, and a, a light, joyful one, um, knowing that there are, 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 of course, challenges that are bound to happen. Um, and um, yeah, I feel like this, the, the questions really helped to um, give both of us a better sense of the other person. So we felt, we felt really good moving forward. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing that because that, again, it's just such a difficult thing early on for the early founders and even people who are starting a company again. It's like, okay, 
that process of going through getting a co-founder, making sure it's the right person, obviously the right fit on paper, but then also diving much deeper because you're going to probably spend more time with them. A lot of times in your family during the week, uh, like it's just crazy how much time you'll spend with them. So, uh, especially your waking hours, it's like, yeah, you're going to spend so much time with that person. And just as we kind of wrap things up and almost, almost out of time here, but starting a venture back company now and the craziness that can come along with that, how do you de-stress manage the the pressure of investors or whatever um you know obviously you're enjoying what you're, you're doing as you want to create this business but how do you step away make sure you kind of perform at your best each day Wes? yeah these are definitely things that i've been thinking about lately to make sure that i don't burn out um i'm the kind of person who um loves diving in and going to the extreme and kind of having the work consume me. And I kind of love Shocking that. And so, so <laughs> I have to put these guardrails in place so that it doesn't, there's not a dark side to that. So one thing that I've been doing that has been really helpful is doing phone calls, walking outside whenever possible. It sounds so simple and most of us can do it. And, uh, and um, that's probably been, been one of the biggest um, ways to, um, just on a daily basis, have some balance. So, you know, instead of sitting in one spot, you know, Zoom calls where you have to, you have to make eye contact with the person and, and you know, it's, it's kind of, it's a lot more mental load. Um, if you even think about being in a meeting, in a, in a um, live meeting in person, you're, the speaker isn't looking at you the entire time right? They're kind of scanning the room. Whereas yep. in Zoom, like everyone is seeing everyone else. And like, you literally cannot like look around or like do anything, like, right? So, so anyway, yeah. so I, I love doing calls, walking outside, hearing birds chirping, seeing trees, feeling the air on my skin, like all feeling the sun. Like these are all so good just for, for adding a state change and a break from, from the day to day. So that's one thing that I've loved. Um, my executive coach uh, recommended getting a, a bird feeder too. He said that a lot of founders, uh, he specializes in working with, with founders. Um, he said a lot of founders uh, benefit from um, having a bird feeder. He did mention founders with ADHD. So it's a little bit different <laughs> that like the bird feeder yeah. and like seeing birds come to your window offers uh, just like a jolt of creativity in the same way that seeing nature or greenery or being outside, like kind of shakes things up. So I got a bird feeder and it's amazing. And I, I it's weird because it sounds so small and like not work related, yeah. but maybe that's the point that it's not work related. And it, and it helps me kind of, uh, remove myself from the, from the, the grind. Um, so the bird feeder has been great and then plants as my hobby. So as you can see from behind me, there are <laughs> many plants. I have yes. over 75 in my house. I love propagating oh. plants. Um, I feel like propagating is the closest thing to alchemy with taking something, turning something from nothing into something. Mm -hmm. um, and I love having a hobby that is not digital, that it's not screen-based. I think that's super important. If my hobby were um, design and Photoshop or something, like that could be a fun thing to do, but it's it's more screen time. It's more browser time. Um, whereas plants, I'm, you know, checking leaves. I'm, you know, looking at the weight of the plant to see if, if it's dry or if it needs water. I'm working with soil. Um, so I think choosing a hobby that is not screen related gives you double the the um, the benefit of de-stressing and um, stepping away from work. 
Yeah, I, I love all of those. I think when I've done from hundreds of interviews in, in my career already, and uh, I think it's come up dozens and dozens of times from founders about being in nature and getting like, out of their house <laughs> in some capacities, whether that be going for a walk or whatever, as a way to help kind of manage the stress, especially as you go on further and further uh, and you need to think higher level. It's like you need to have that time to be able to think and kind of de-stress. Uh, I know we're out of time here. So where's the best place for people to get in touch with you and learn more about Maven as well, Wes? Yeah, our website is maven.com. So if anyone's interested in being an instructor on our platform, check that out. And then my website is westko.com. And I'm also on Twitter. Awesome. This has been a lot of fun. I'm glad you also have a name for your company now. And I appreciate you taking the time. (laughs) It's much more useful to have a name. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Thanks, Justin. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc. Or you can follow me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.